Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. You know, those who reject the idea of a millennium, one question they need to grapple with is, why would Christ need to rule with a rod of iron in an eternally righteous kingdom? That doesn't make sense. Ruling with a rod of iron only is necessary if you still have resistance and you need to enforce against that resistance. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapter 65 through 66. So, let's pick up here. Now, here's Pastor Brian. In chapter 65, verse 1. And here in these two final chapters of Isaiah, very interesting things here in Isaiah 65 and 66. There's passages that are going to deal with the the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to deal with a situation that's going to develop around a third temple that is going to be built. You know, we've had historically, we had the temple that was built by Solomon. And then we had the first temple. Then we had the second temple which was the temple that existed at the time of Christ. And that temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel many centuries before, but it was, it was beautified by Herod during the life and ministry of Jesus to some extent. And it was fabulous. It was extraordinary. That temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and there's not been another temple since then. But Isaiah is going to tell us about another temple, the third temple. And there's some very interesting things that he says about that. So, but he begins here, and the Lord is speaking, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. So what is the Lord talking about here? He's talking about how he stretched out his hands all day long to the people of Israel, but they shunned him. But then the Gentiles embraced him. And that's what he's talking about here. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So that's a reference to the Gentiles. Now, Paul, in writing to the Romans, Paul quotes these exact verses in the 10th chapter of Romans. And he himself, he applies them there. So he says, to Israel, he says, Paul, these are Paul's words in Romans. To Israel, he says, I stretched out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. He says, that's what the Lord says about Israel. But what he says about the Gentiles is that he was sought by a nation that were not his people. And of course, as, as we think about history since the time of Christ, 
Um, you remember, of course, Jesus came. He came to the nation of Israel. And there was a harvest among the, the nation at the time of Christ. All the apostles were Jewish and all the early believers were Jewish. And many of the what's called the diaspora Jews, the Jews that were scattered throughout the world on Pentecost, many of them came to faith. But it's not too long into the story of the history of the church where you find that the Jews are becoming more resistant to the message and the Gentiles are completely open to it. And there's you know, actually a point where Paul would say a couple of times to the Jewish people, he would say, you know, since you count yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I will go to the Gentiles and they will hear. And so we see that that has pretty much been the story of history, that the Gentiles have been open and longing to hear the good news of the gospel and the Jews historically have remained resistant to it. And that's still the case today. Sadly, unfortunately, the majority of Jewish people don't have interest in the person of Jesus, don't have any time for that. And yet we still continue to see among the Gentile nations, we continue to see a harvest of souls. So that's what he's talking about here. A people who provoke me, speaking of Israel again, to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. So he's just describing some of the habits and and behaviors of the idolaters and Israel themselves. They've been caught up into all of this themselves. But their attitude, verse five, is who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. So they're involved in all these perverse practices, like he mentions here, you know, offering the sacrifices and the incense to the various gods and so forth. But then at the same time, they see themselves as holy. And so they say, you know, don't come near me. I'm, I'm holier than you are. So just the delusion that they were under, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay Even repay into their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. So as we've seen all the way through, here's another passage where God is affirming to them the judgment that will come upon them. And... Remember, historically, the judgment had not come yet when Isaiah wrote, but he's speaking of the judgment that would come, first of all, through Nebuchadnezzar, as we've mentioned many times, but then secondly, the judgment who would come through the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. But then we're going to see here, there's a third judgment that's going to come, and that will come under the person we commonly call the Antichrist. And we're going to get into all of that here in a moment. So... He says, though, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah an heir. 
of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. Sharon is a, a region west of Jerusalem toward what is today Tel Aviv and the valley of Akor, a place for herds to lie down, my people who have sought me. So the picture is a remnant. So there's a cluster of grapes and many of them are bad. But in the cluster, there are, there are good grapes found. And so the Lord is saying, that's how Israel is. And for the sake of those good ones, in the sense that they're believing, for their sake, I'm not going to destroy the nation. I won't wipe the nation out. But the nation deserves to be wiped out, but I'm, I'm going to spare it because of these righteous ones. That's what he's talking about here. And so... Verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad and furnish a drink offering for many. And so these are references to false deities here. Therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So the Lord says, I called, you didn't answer. And this will become even more blatantly the case when the Lord comes among them in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and calls to them. But then, of course, they reject him. So therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. So the Lord is, he's contrasting the nation who he's saying, I'm judging you with the remnant. And so my servants are the ones who have truly clung to him, despite what the rest of the nation is doing. So behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Now, think about this in, you know, think about when these words were uttered by Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah prophesies approximately 700 years before the time of Jesus. And it's interesting here where he says, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. And in the case here, his chosen are that remnant and they would be the followers of Jesus when he came. That's who he's talking about. But he's talking about how the unbelieving nation is going to be a curse even to the chosen just because of the identification between the two. But then he says this, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Isn't that interesting? Because those first believers in Jesus as the Messiah, they were no longer by the collective nation regarded as Jews. They were regarded by another name, and that name would have been Christians. So, verse 16 says, He 
who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Listen to verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So let's go back to verse 17 for a moment. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I think in the context here, it is clearly not the new heavens and earth that are referred to in Revelation chapter 21, which is literally seemingly a new heaven and a new earth where the first heaven and earth vanish and God creates a, an entirely new universe. I think here in the context, we have to understand, although, although this will be the, <laughs> this is kind of the beginning of the creating of the new heavens and the new earth, but it starts here with what we call the millennium. Now, millennium means 1,000. And we call this period the millennium because of Revelation chapter 20, six times in Revelation chapter 20, it speaks about the Lord reigning on the earth for 1,000 years. It speaks about Satan being bound for 1,000 years and, and the Lord reigning with his saints and so forth. And this is what's being described here. So this is, like I said, this is the beginning of the final new heaven and the new earth, but that will come after this 1,000-year period. So in this 1,000-year period, you're going to have people who all of the saints who have believed in and trusted the Lord throughout all of history will be resurrected, glorified. They will rule and reign with Christ over, over the earth, over the, the cosmos. And you will also have people who are not glorified. They're not in new bodies. They are still in the natural body, they, initially they came through the tribulation, they survived the tribulation as believers, they then came into the kingdom and they repopulate the world. And they will be the ones who inhabit and, and live upon the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ, where the saints from both the Old and the New Testament period again, will be glorified and ruling and reigning with Christ over that world then. 
Now here, it gives us a little bit of insight into what it will be like. And notice what it says in verse 20, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. So life will be extended. Life expectancy will will be extended. And what's implied here is that people will potentially live through the whole period, a thousand years. Now, that's interesting if you think about Genesis and you go back to the early parts of Genesis and there we read about you know, the, the different uh, patriarchs and we read about this incredible uh, length of life that they had. And some people have thought, well, that's surely got to be mythological. I mean, nobody lives to be 969 years old. But actually they did. They lived these extended lives before the time of the flood. And the millennium, we're going back to a situation that's similar to that. So life will be extended. And as it says here, it says, for the child will die 100 years old. So what that's telling us is a 100-year-old person will be considered a child. So the quest, two questions that arise are, is there sin and is there death? Well, we just saw here, a child will die at 100 years old. There will be death and therefore there must be sin because sin, death is the consequence of sin. But when you think about death, for example, we should understand it as death will during the millennium be the exception. Today, it's the rule, everybody dies. And nobody lives beyond, you know, I mean, 120 years is like maximum, maximum, maximum. So, so that's the rule. In the millennium, it will be the reverse. It will be the exception. There will be occasionally people that die, but for the most part, those who are following the Lord and obedient to him and so forth are going to live these amazingly long, wonderful, blessed lives. Now, is there going to be sin? Yes, there will be sin, but it will be checked. So, First of all, there's no devil. There is a devil, but he's going to be in a pit for a thousand years. So he's no longer able to tempt. So you take the devil out of the picture, and although sin still remains, it's not nearly the problem that it is without someone there to exploit it. And so even though sin's there, there's no devil. Even though sin is there, the world Remember, uh, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things will no longer be a factor. So you think about it, you think our sin natures, Satan uses the, the world to appeal to our sin natures. So Satan's out of the picture the world as we know it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is no longer there. But there still is sin that resides in the heart. Jesus is said to reign during this time with a rod or to rule with a rod of iron. And that signifies that there will be the necessity of discipline. There will be the necessity of punishment. You know, those who reject the idea of a millennium one question they need to grapple with is why would Christ need to rule with a rod of iron in an eternally righteous kingdom? 
that doesn't make sense. Ruling with a rod of iron only is necessary if you still have resistance and you need to enforce against that resistance. So that's just something that people who are amillennial, postmillennial, people who reject the idea that there is an actual thousand-year reign of Christ, that's just one thing that they should think about. But sin will... Sin will still be in the heart, but it will be, it, the opportunities to sin will not be there. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we find out at the end of this thousand year period, Satan is released. And what is he able to do? He's able to deceive multitudes once again because of the, of the sin, the residual sin that is, is still there in the heart of man. And he's able to foster a, a new rebellion against the Lord. So, but death will be the exception. A child will die at 100 years old. So when you're 100 years old during that time, people will say, it's just a baby. And then I I love what it says here in verse 22. This is a, a great way to describe it. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. You know, just not too long ago, I was up in Northern California and we went to this amazing redwood forest and there was a tree in there that was, oh my, I think it was over, I can't, I can't remember the date on it, but I, you know, it was 700 years, 800 years. That so was something like that. It was maybe even a thousand years old. And you look at this thing and you think, wow, it's amazing. You know, this majestic, gigantic, ancient tree. And when I read this verse, I think of that. Yeah, as... As the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Just a long, long, long life that the Lord's going to give. So down in verse 24, and it shall come to pass. This is in that whole new thing. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So there's going to be just that immediate connection with the Lord that face-to-face communion. And then verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So this beautiful picture of how things have gone back to the way God originally planned them to be before sin entered into the world, before the corruption set in, before the animal kingdom was turned to being, you know, ferocious and vicious and so forth. Uh, the wolf and the lamb. Now, I was thinking, I was just thinking about this, you know, because we, we often think of, um, people have often said, so where's that passage on the lion and the lamb laying down together? Um, actually, there is no passage that says specifically the lion and the lamb will lay together. I think maybe we get that a little bit confused because in Revelation, the lamb that was slain is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, so that we might get it there. Maybe we got it from some worship songs, that <laughs> the lion and the lamb, for example, which is a great song. But here it says the wolf and the lamb.
for the month of September. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller. With so much social, cultural, and relational unrest, all of us need to forgive or be forgiven in either small or significant ways. Have you ever found it difficult to forgive someone for a wrong they committed against you? What if that person never apologized? How can you forgive someone who hasn't even acknowledged they have done something wrong? In his book, Forgive, Timothy Keller lays out the path of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation rather than the path of unforgiveness that can lead towards retaliation. You'll learn about the power of forgiveness that can bring freedom both to the one who forgives and the one who has been forgiven. We are living in a time where forgiveness is desperately needed. If you're struggling with forgiveness or even guilt, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.